Galatians chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 10. We're going to go all the way to verse 18. Working our way through Galatians slowly but surely. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. And Lord, thank you for this church and the chance to gather together, Lord, with your saints and minister one to another. Lord, we're excited for the work, Lord, that you have for us, Lord, both in your word, Lord, and in gift shop. Lord, as you minister, Lord, prophetically through your word, as you speak words of exhortation, comfort, encouragement. Lord, I pray that we'd be built up, Lord, in our most holy faith, Lord, to go out and make disciples. Lord, to be encouraged and equipped, Lord, to then go out and pour into somebody else's life, Father. And so, Lord, help us to keep that focus, Lord, as we abide in you and and look at your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, it's not uncommon for some of the Disney classic love stories to tell a story of a person who is under a curse who then gets rescued by their true love, right? This is the testimony of Sleeping Beauty, Snow White, and the Beast. Now, now some of you might not know this, but actually the Beast really has no name. There's a conspiracy theory that his name might be Adam, but it, most people say his name is just the Beast. So whether you're a princess or a prince, before Christ, you're without hope. But yet, your lover through his, his, his heroic act came and freed you in him. Now, here's a funny question. How many of these lovers would then, after being delivered from a curse, would happily and knowingly put themselves back under a curse? Now, this sounds crazy. It would actually be an ABC, maybe a, a new ABC series, <laughs> only if they became zombies, right? As we, as we, as we learned on Sunday. Now, sadly, this is what was going on in the lives of the Galatians. Let me explain what I'm talking about. The Galatians were under the curse of sin and and also in bondage of paganism. Now, while under this curse and in bondage, they were rescued by Jesus Christ. Paul came to them, and he preached the gospel. They were delivered from idols. They were delivered from their bondage. They became lovers of Jesus Christ. They were living happily ever after with the Lord. But then during this time, Paul tells us in Galatians 3.1, he says, Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? And so these believers, as they were walking with the Lord and joining the Lord, were bewitched. These Judaizers came in, and they began teaching them that rather than just trusting the gospel alone for salvation, they also needed to keep the law in in. in you know, for this in order to really be justified. And they began buying into this teaching. Well, as Paul's going to tell them tonight in our passage, he's going to say, if you go to the law, it's going to bring a curse. But rather than go to the law, they were to stay focused on Jesus and his amazing grace. They were to continue on. They were to abide in grace and press forward in this relationship, this love relationship that the Lord has set up for them through their faith. So as we continue through Paul's defense of the gospel of grace, we'll focus on two things. Number one, don't be bewitched to turn from the love of Christ to the curse of the law. And number two, keep your eyes on Jesus who bore our curse so we can have a relationship. So first, in verses 10 through 12, we see a warning. Don't be bewitched to turn from the love of Christ to the curse of the law. Now last week, we saw that Paul used six logical questions in order to show the, uh, in order to show the Galatians by their experience that they were not to turn to the law. He showed them you know, these six questions, and each one of them really pointed to the, the Christian life as, as we desire it, the fact that they were delivered 
They were, you know, the Lord was working through their life by the Holy Spirit. Now, in our passage this evening, Paul is going to point to six Old Testament scriptures in verses 10 through 14 to show them from the word that they were not to turn to the law. So the first scripture we see here is in verse 10. It says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Curse is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Let's begin by defining what Paul's talking about by the law, because the word law is used a couple of different ways throughout scriptures. Now, the most common way is used here is referring to the law of Moses, that law that God gave through Moses there at Mount Sinai. Now, this law consisted of the Ten Commandments, which we're all familiar with, right, in the Exodus chapter 20. But there was more to the law than just ten, the Ten Commandments. The law actually starts in Exodus 20, but we see principles and commandments all the way through into the end of the book of Deuteronomy. Now, the rabbis in Judaism, they counted some 613 commandments of the law, some positive and others negative. Now, scholars have also divided these commandments up into ceremonial laws, legal laws, and moral laws. And so as you look at them, you say, yeah, that's a ceremonial law. That's a legal law. That's a moral law. Now, while it's helpful for you and I to break these laws up into ceremonial, legal, and moral, it's important to think about the law biblically as it's portrayed in the scriptures. You see, we can break the law up into different sections, but the Bible always presents the law as one unit. Let me give you a couple of examples. James 1.10 says, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Paul in Galatians 5.3 says, I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. And also here in this verse, verse 10, Paul quotes Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. He says, the curse of the law will come upon all those who do not obey all the law. And so the law is always looked at as, as one unit. Now some religious groups falsely want to teach that Christians are, you know, to keep certain laws. They say, yeah, oh no, you're to keep these laws, but you don't really have to keep those laws. Those are ceremonial, those are legal laws. And the Bible would teach otherwise. The Bible teaches that the law is all one unit. They would seek to point to like the Sabbath day or the different dietary laws, but they forget about the other 611 commandments. They forget about the laws of cleanness and uncleanness. Very detailed laws about the laws of cleanness and uncleanness. Just read the book of Leviticus. They forget that under the law, all the males are to go to Jerusalem three times a year. Pentecost, Passover, and Tabernacles. The failure to do so to keep these feasts in the place where the temple is, is sin. You can't keep the Passover under the law in Hanfer. You have to go to Jerusalem. So you can't pick and choose which laws you want to keep. The Bible says you must keep all of them if you're to operate righteously under the law. Now, if you fail to do so, the Bible says that you're then under the curse of the law because you need to keep all of them perfectly. If you break just one, then you fall under the curse. You, you sin, you break all of them. Now, in some cases in the Old Testament, this curse meant capital punishment. And so for certain laws, such as blasphemy, adultery, things like that, God ordered capital punishment. They would stone the person um, to death. They would die. 
But for all sin, for all breaking of the law, Paul tells us in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God. And so as we take ourselves and, and we look at the law, we don't get very far through the 613 commandments to realize, oh, I've broken that one. I've definitely broken that one. Uh, you know, and so, so we go through, we all have broken the law in some way. Therefore, we're all guilty. We're all under the curse of the law. So Paul gives us this first warning here. He's writing to these Gentiles. You know, they have these false teachers and they're saying, no, you guys need to keep the law in order to be righteous. And Paul says, hey, just think about this for a second. If you go to the law, you're then putting yourself under its curse because you can't keep the law. You can't keep it perfectly. And so you are saved from a curse of your sin. Now you're seeking to put yourself back under a curse. And so we need to beware um, of this. We can't earn our salvation by keeping the law we, we receive it by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. The only way that a person can be righteous by the law is they have to keep all the law perfectly. And no one can do that but Jesus Christ because none are perfect. No, not one. Verse 11, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. And so Paul goes on here and says that even the righteous believers in the Old Testament understood that no one was saved by keeping the law perfectly. No one could ever be saved by that, but rather they were justified by faith alone. Now, before the law, we saw that Abraham was saved by faith alone. There in Genesis chapter 15, we're given the testimony that Abraham believed God, and God imputed it to him. He accounted it to him as righteousness. So Abraham was saved before the law. And then now Paul points to the people who were living under the law. He first of all points to Habakkuk. And he says, listen to Habakkuk's testimony. In Habakkuk 2.4 Habakkuk himself declared that he wasn't saved by the law, but he was saved by faith, that the righteous walk by faith. And this was really the verse that motivated Luther, that, that you know, to, to, to make a stand for the gospel of grace, to realize, well, I can't be saved by works, by the sacraments. I need to make a stand for justification by faith alone. That's how a person is saved. A sinner cannot stand before a holy God and be made righteous by keeping the law because None are righteous, no, not one. A person can't keep them all. Even King David said that he wasn't saved by works, and he lived under the law. Paul in Romans 4, 5 through 8 says this. He says, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those in whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. And so David, who was living under the law, even declared that he was saved by faith alone. And then Isaiah, who lived under the law. Isaiah 64, 6 says, All of our good works are like filthy rags in the eyes of the Lord. Now the context of this verse is Isaiah was writing to the Jews who were seeking to come to God, going through the motions of the law, but yet their hearts were far from God. They weren't walking with the Lord. And, I, and Isaiah says, guys, you can't please God with just going through the motions of these works. God wants your heart. He wants your faith. That's how a person is righteous, by submitting your heart and your life to God and, and his word. And so, once again, we have another warning. Think biblically, Paul's saying. Think biblically. If it, you're saved by faith alone. Now, some teachings sound spiritual. They might even appeal to you. But we must always judge them according to the word. And that's what Paul does here. He says, let's take these things that these guys are saying. Let's, let's apply it to 
the word of God. At that time, it was the Old Testament that they had, the, the Septuagint maybe. You know, these Greek translations, the Hebrew scriptures. Let's apply these things to the scriptures. And Paul says, look, they don't line up. In the same way, whenever something comes into our life, whether it's a teaching or whether it's a decision, we need to line it up to the word and see what the Bible says about it. If the Bible contradicts it, you know, if the Bible speaks against it, well, then we reject it. We follow what the word tells us to do. Now, if the Bible is silent about it, say maybe in a liberty issue, the Bible doesn't speak clearly about it, well, then we have different principles that we can fall back on. For example, in, in liberty, for example, love trumps liberty, right? And so, you know, we're to operate in love that we don't stumble other people and, and things like that. It's just one example. But whatever it is, we need to think biblically. Now, verse 12, yet the law is not a faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. So Paul now gets really to the heart of the law. He really tells why God gave the law in the first place. The stress of the law is works obedience. And he points to Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. Paul shows that adding the requirement to keep the law with believing in Jesus is a contradiction. You can't do it. You see, because the gospel teaches believe and be saved, right? Believe and be justified. But then to bring the law in, which teaches do and be righteous, they don't work together. They can't. Because the law requires perfect obedience. The person who desires to be under law, to keep the law, must continually keep the law. They must continually live under these things. And to fail to keep them is to be unrighteous, to be under the curse in God's sight. And so, basically what Paul is saying is that to, to add the law to grace is a contradiction in terms. You can't do it. The other one cancels the other out. So they needed to pick one. Either they were going to be under the law, or they were to be under grace. Now, if they were to choose grace, then they would continue to walk in freedom and continue to walk in a spirit-filled relationship with the Lord. But if they chose the law, well, then they would put themselves under a curse. Now, let's go back to our illustration real fast before we go on to our second point. Now, with this inside of the law, it's obvious that it would be crazy for these believers to be bewitched by these false teachers. You see, they were free, they were saved, they were righteous, but yet here's these false teachers coming in, trying to put them under curse. You know, I, I just think of like the witch, you know, <laughs> with the apple kind of thing. Eat this, pretty, you know, kind of thing. You know, you, know, you fall, fall, fall back under the curse. You know, it could be a, you know, it could be the apple of legalism. Whatever it could be, that's what they were promoting, legalism. Bring yourself this. And the Lord says, no, I freed you from the law. You're freed from it. You're saved. You're righteous in God's eyes. Don't put yourself back under it. Don't put yourself back under it. Or, in, you know, in, in application sense, we can look at it as sin. You know, that, the enemy also comes to us with, with sin and says, hey, listen, yeah, you're free in Christ. But why don't you just go and live in sin? It, it's okay. God will forgive you. And then we say as Paul, it says, no, while all things are lawful, I will not be brought under the power of any, Paul says. I don't want to be brought under any. May I, you know, while I might have liberty to do different things, I don't want anything to get a hold of me, to put me back under bondage because I've been freed from bondage. So whatever it is, you know, we're anti-apple kind of thing. Don't, I'm not eating that kind of thing. We reject it. We reject legalism and license in order to remain in a loving relationship with the Lord because we realize from his word that abiding in him is the best. Walking in his grace and abiding in justification by faith is ultimately um, what the Lord want, has blessed us with and wants to continue to bless us with. So now we come to our second point. In verses 13 to 18, we see that we're to keep our eyes on Jesus who bore our curse 
so that we can have a relationship. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who hangs on a tree. Now we just saw that breaking the law brings a curse. Now all, have, all mankind have broken God's law, therefore all have been sentenced to death in eternal, in eternal separation from God because of sin. That's the bad news. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But there's good news. And Paul tells us here, Jesus has redeemed us from this curse of the law by, notice this, becoming a curse for us. He took our place. How did he do this? Well, look at Deuteronomy 21, 23, which Paul quotes here. Now, Paul here refers to this verse, and really the context of this verse was that under some circumstances, under the law, because of some sins, they would stone a person, and then they would take that person who was dead, and they would hang him up on a tree or maybe a stake, and they were up there for all to see and for all to realize what that sin brought. They said, look, everybody, this is what the curse of sin brings. Don't do that kind of thing. This is the weight of sin. This is what sin brings. Now, Paul takes this, obviously not literally, because Jesus wasn't dead before he went to the cross. Paul takes this here, and he applies it to the cross of Christ. And he takes this and he applies it to what the Galatians were going through. And he says, well, look at Jesus. Jesus died for our sin. And while he was on the cross, he took our, the curse of our sin, and he died in our place for us. He bore God's wrath for us, and he bore the curse for our sin. And he was a penal substitution for us. In other words, he wasn't made totally sin, but he took our sin upon him. He took the, the weight, he took the penalty of it, and there he died instead of us. He died as our substitute in our place. And because of our faith in the Lord, we can then become redeemed. We can be then free from that curse. We're no longer held guilty of it. It's an amazing thing. Now, notice the results. I notice I said here redeemed, and that word there is actually an interesting Greek word. I'm told it means to buy one out of a marketplace of slavery, to be set free from the marketplace of slavery. And that's what Paul's saying here. Once again, you were under the curse. You were held bondage and captive, and now you want to go back under it, but realize what Jesus did for you. He took the curse of the law for you. He took your sin, and by believing in him, he set you free. He paid your price, which was death. The wage of the sin is death. And then he gave you new life and new hope. He broke the chains away from your feet and your hands and he set you free that you would walk in victory and joy. It's really a, a sweet thing when you think about it. But it doesn't stop there. It gets even better. Look at verse 14. That also the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we may receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The second result Paul points to is that through Jesus' death, he has made it possible for Gentiles to be saved. Now, obviously, as Gentiles, we think it's all about us, right? Obviously, God had to save me. But through the cross of Christ, through this blessing that would come from Abraham, we'll talk about it in a second, the Bible says that God made it possible for Gentiles to be saved and receive this blessing of Abraham, which is salvation in the Lord. And so through the cross of Christ, he has made it possible for all men to be saved. We like that verse where it says that Christ is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. And the Bible says in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And so through the cross, 
God has, all, God has made it possible, number one, by forgiving our sin, by, you know, putting the weight of our sin and our curse upon Christ, but also he has dispensed the grace in order for us to be able to be um, saved, in order to believe the gospel and turn from our sin and follow the Lord. Now, also Paul points out here that through Jesus' death, and also we know from other scriptures, his resurrection and ascension, he has made it possible for us to receive the Holy Spirit, this promise of the Spirit. Now, in the New Testament, we have something amazing. We have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, they didn't have that, which is why David in the Psalms would say, Lord, take not your Holy Spirit away from me. But on the day of Pentecost, something amazing happened. God poured out his Spirit upon all flesh. And we now have this permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We are now temples of God. Paul describes this Holy Spirit in Ephesians as a wedding ring, our earnest guarantee. And so as the bride of Christ, God gives us his Holy Spirit as a, basically like a wedding ring. It's a guarantee of our promise that we'll be with him for all eternity in him, which is kind of crazy to think that people say that you can lose your salvation. What's the Lord going to come and take your engagement ring away kind of thing? No, the Lord has given us his Holy Spirit by our faith in him. And it's a hope, it's a promise that one day we'll be with him. We're going to celebrate with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so that's our hope in Christ. As we, as we look to him, he, he bore our curse. Now, something I want to point out real fast before we move on. I was thinking about this tonight. It's amazing that Christ bore our curse. You know, but it also shows us that, that the Lord is also willing to bear anything that we have, any burden that we have. You know, we think, oh, thanks, Lord, for bearing my curse, but obviously you don't want to hear my problems. No, the Lord, he does. If, if he was willing to bear our sin, the sins of the entire world, and then, we're, and then he's able to have our burdens cast upon him because he cares for us. The Lord is always open. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, right? For I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. The Lord is always open, always able, always willing to take our burdens upon himself. And we know that for a fact. We can trust in that from the word because he was willing to bear the curse of the sins. Even while we're still enemies, the Bible says, Christ died for us. And so we can have that hope, that, that promise as we press forward in this relationship with him. Verse 15, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls it or adds to it. And so after Paul talks about justification by faith, he now answers an objection before it comes up. No doubt the Judaizers would say, but wait a second. If you're talking about salvation for the Gentiles and all men through the promise of Abraham, through the Abrahamic covenant, what about the law which was given 430 years later? What about the law which was given after that? Wouldn't that cancel out this promise and point now to that, the fact that salvation is by keeping the law? So Paul's going to make a quick argument here that that's not true and that the promise is still um, given through Christ and, you know, for all men to be saved. And the first argument he points here is through the giving of a man's covenant. The point of this verse is to stress the importance and immutability of the promise that God made to Abraham. You see, the Gentiles, these Galatians knew from their culture that different laws and covenants were given and they could not be added to or changed. Now, if that was so, if they knew that once a covenant was given, say, in their culture, and it couldn't be changed, how much more 
could the covenant that God gave to Abraham from God himself not be changed or made void? And God did give this covenant to Abraham. And God alone was the one who promised to fulfill it. And we see that in Genesis 15. When God cut covenant with Abraham, he had Abraham divide these animals. And they were told that God alone walked through these animals. Symbolizing the fact that this would be in what's called an unconditional covenant. That God alone would be the one to fulfill it. Abraham you know, would only obey it for the, to experience the present blessing of the covenant. But yet, it would be God ultimately who would fulfill it in the end because God was the one who gave it. And so Paul says, no, man, the Abrahamic covenant, this promise of spiritual blessing upon all people who believe in Christ is a guarantee. It's unconditional because God alone gave it. Verse 16, now to Abraham and his seed were, promised, uh, were the promises made. Now he does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. Now, the promises and blessing that Paul refers to in this context, as we know, is salvation. Now, Paul here points out that the promises were not just made with Abraham, but they were made with his seed, singular, which was also Christ. And so, God made this promise to Abraham, but he also made it to Jesus. And Paul points this out here to show them that, once again, it's a guarantee. The fact that the Lord would fulfill these things because he made them to his own son, who is eternal. The spiritual blessings that Paul refers to is in Genesis twenty-two eighteen. 18. It refers to the fact that Jesus would be the one to whom all would be blessed, this seed. Verse 17, And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So Paul here plainly says that the law which came later could not make void the promises made to Abraham. They couldn't change them. They couldn't add to them in any way. The promises still stood. Now, what's the mention here of 430 years? Well, more than likely, the 430 years is referring to the last promise that God gave to Jacob there as he was on his way to Egypt, which would have been 430 years exactly from when God made the Sinaitic, you know, the, the covenant there with, with uh, Moses and Israel on uh, Mount Sinai. Because if you do the math, Abraham lived, you know, some 200 years or so be, you know, before Jacob, you know. And so, and so God passed these promises of the Abrahamic covenant on to um, Abraham's sons. Isaac received it. And then later, Jacob received it, and God confirmed it as he was on his way to Egypt uh, with his family. And then he fulfilled it, and in, 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 in is continuing to fulfill it, as, you know, as, um, as we see now, even in history. And so, these promises were not made void. The Abrahamic covenant still stands, which means Gentile salvation by grace through faith alone still stands. Kind of a jumble you know, of, of words, um, but I, I think that William McDonald kind of explains it well here and makes it real simple. Here's what he says concerning these verses. Paul's argument in this section may be summarized as follows. In Genesis 12:3, God promised a, uh, to bless all families of the earth in Abram. Now this promise of salvation included Gentiles as well as Jews. In Genesis 22:18, God also promised, "In your seed all the nations shall be blessed." He said seed singular, not seeds plural. God was referring to one person, 
the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a direct descendant of Abraham. In other words, God promised to bless all nations, Gentile as well as Jewish, through Christ. The promise was unconditional. It required neither good works nor legal obedience. It was a simple promise meant to be received in simple faith. So that's basically what Paul is saying here in these verses. The promise still stands. Nothing can change it. It's still valid today. So in closing, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus, who has made our salvation possible, who took our curse for us, but who also wants to continue to walk with us. Beware of legalism, which desires to pull us away from the Lord, pull us away from that that intimacy um, with the Lord. Amen?